We've been speaking about return on investment and the theory of living thoughtfully. And in that context, I've been speaking to you about the importance of reflection. There are two stages to reflection. What happened and what did I learn? I call this, I call this dreaming deliberately. Deliberately play, playing the scenes in my mind, recalling as vividly and graphically as I can all that happened. Not putting a rosy color on it, keeping it as emotion-free as possible, just being the spectator and watching it happen again. Doing this not simply to relive, lament or bemoan or torture myself, but rather as an interested spectator, critically watch what happened in order to learn. This reflective observation is the first step in learning from life using our own experience as the teacher. The higher our integrity when doing this, the more valuable the learning. There is great temptation to make ourselves look good, but it must be resisted. I don't mean to imply that we are always the ones who are wrong. I only mean that we must be honest about what actually happened and not try to avoid the pain. The two biggest blocks to learning are the desire for pleasure and the avoidance of pain. We must be aware of both, lest they render our life useless and, make the same, and we make the same mistakes again and again. That is the real loss, to do wrong a second time. As they say, a mistake committed twice is a decision. Or rather, committed for the second time is a decision. While dreaming deliberately, we need to keep the circumstances surrounding the incident in mind. Once again, being absolutely honest with ourselves, because if we don't, then the only kind of deception that would be happening would be self-deception, and that prevents all learning. So we watch it happen in our mind, we watch it happen, see our own role in it, reflect on the circumstances leading to the incident, ask ourselves, what else could I have done? What were my alternatives? What actions happened because I was not thinking? What did I actually choose to do? Had I chosen another course of action? What new scenarios would have come into play? Life is like a series of parallel worlds. Depending on what we choose to do, a new vista opens before us and we walk that path. Sometimes it's not possible to change anything until we come to the next crossroad or fork. At other times, we can actually trace our steps back to the last fork and go down the path we did not choose the last time, and new scenery unfolds for us. What we call destiny is this scenery. We can't change it. It comes with the path. The forks or crossroads are the choices, the paths that we can choose to walk. If we want different scenery, we need to walk a different path, the path which has that kind of scenery. Want to walk in the fields? Go to the countryside, want to window shop, walk down Main Street. It's really that simple. We get to choose our destiny, albeit without knowing exactly what the details will be. However, we have enough indicators to tell us if it will be good or bad, even if we don't know the details. Our values are the guides which help us to make the right choices, and that is the reason they are so important. Confusion about choices is often the first indicator that we are about to compromise our values. If we are true to our values, there is no confusion. 
we know why we are choosing a particular path we know what is likely to happen and we make that choice deliberately but when we are about to succumb to temptation and compromise our values our conscience starts to beep and we feel fear this fear is different from the fear we call excitement which we feel when we are about to embark on a high risk high high return venture but one that does not entail compromising values excitement is fear that anticipates a happy ending it energizes enhances awareness and enables us to live the moment fully i used to hunt big game in my youth and even today more than 30 years later i can vividly recall the excitement of walking down a game trail my gun ready at port watching every every leaf twig and shadow identifying it for what it really was and not what it might appear to be until too late the shadow could well be the dappled coat of the tigress as she lay crushed in the grass waiting for her prey to get within striking distance when one short charge preceded by a roar that turns knees to water would signal the end of the career of any hunter this fear would enhance my level of awareness of my surroundings to such an extent that even today i can actually smell the scent of the hot soil baking in the heat of a may sun excitement is a healthy fear that adds value to life the fear that arises as a result of our conscience beeping is deli- is debilitating energy sapping and slows us down wisdom lies in listening to this inner voice and changing the choice and choosing a different path deliberate dreaming if done well enables us to live those moments again so that through the pain and embarrassment of it all we are able to see where we went wrong and learn once we have done enough of reflection in terms of what happened and have gathered enough material to work with we must move to the next stage and that is to ask ourselves what did i learn conceptualizing or conceptualization is the extract of experience which determines its value what we don't conceptualize remains raw experience not particularly useful because it is unable to guide us to reach any useful conclusion at best it may be an interesting story at worst not even that the biggest loss is that what we don't conceptualize we can't teach anyone so our experience remains useless to ourselves and others a very important part of conceptualization is to actively try to see what we could have controlled and what was really out of control later we shall see how this is an important element to remember while making choices but for now reflecting on our past it is important to look for the signs of control ask who is in control why what gave them that power what made me powerless at the time what could i have done to change that situation and regain some of my power which i had given away for this let me suggest to you a very valuable tool it's called the learning journal This is a very valuable tool to use for reflection and conceptualization. I've used this tool for several decades and I've taught it to several thousand students over 25 or now 35 years of teaching. The learning journal is a tool to encourage living thoughtfully. Its format is very simple as you will see in the accompanying uh, text. What happened? Why is it important? What did I learn? Let's draw three columns, the heading of each column, what happened, the second one, why is it important, and the third one, what did I learn. Every evening, you fill, you fill out this format. You first record all significant incidents of the day, 
Then you reflect on and record why you believe they were significant. Then you conceptualize your reflections and record the lessons that you learned. Some days you may come out blank in any one uh, of the columns. You may not remember what happened that day. It is a lesson to prove that you completely wasted 8 to 10 hours of your waking time, which will never return. It is often a very powerful wake-up call for most people to stare blankly at their learning journal, trying to remember what they had done. The second and third columns often need more time, and so it is alright to record the significant events, and then do the reflection and conceptualization over the next few days, and fill them in when you are done. The recording is essential because no matter what we like to believe about our memories, they are transient, and even the most important lessons are lost if they are not recorded. So recording is essential. I also find that writing helps me to think in a structured way, which frankly is the only way to think efficiently and effectively. Random thoughts simply float around in the mind but get nowhere and no lessons emerge. But if you can structure your thoughts, you will find that you can accomplish much in a very short time. As you gain experience and develop your conceptualizing skills, you can do it faster and more sharply each time. This takes practice, needless to say, and the learning journal is a tool. The fourth one is choices. Once we have completed our learning, we come to the next stage, and that is to ask, so what can I do now to change my destiny? We need to make a choice. This is the most difficult of all stages, to actively choose to change our lifestyle. For one, this may mean choosing to give up doing things that we enjoy doing but, but which we realize were harmful. But just because we realize their harmfulness, it does not mean that giving, up, giving them up would be easy. All sorts of addictions fall into this category. Another difficult choice, even more than the first, is to re-choose our friends. It's amazing how friends can either facilitate or inhibit change. Depending on the kind of circle we move around in, the new lifestyle changes we planned on planned on become easy or difficult. Our friends will support us or criticize us. That is why it's necessary to choose our friends and give up those who are destructive and toxic. The best way to do this is to invite your friends to your new way. If they agree, it is good for them. If not, it's good for you. If not, they will leave you on their own as you have changed within quotes. There are two elements in making a choice, things which are in our direct control and things which we control but which we don't control but can either influence or prepare for when they happen. Now, I believe that it's essential to, uh, to classify choices on the basis of what we control because then courses of action become clearly visible. There are two aspects of the choices that we directly control which we need to take into account, the cost of the choice and its benefit. A cost-benefit analysis of any choice is essential because many a time we fail to choose wisely because we have a vague fear in our mind about the consequences of choosing. However, when we analyze the cost of taking an action and the benefit, both long and short term, of doing that, we realize that the benefit far outweighs the cost. I have even had the experience of realizing that the so-called cost was something in my mind and not real at all. And I carried out a formal analysis and went looking for hard data to support my feelings. It is good to remember and remind ourselves that the benefit of a choice may not always be material. 
which is standing up for the minority opinion, for example, or for justice and truth, or to support the oppressed, and the cost may appear to be too high. But one must weigh this against the real cost of the death of your soul, and against the real benefit of perhaps losing even your life, but remaining alive for posterity as a beacon of guidance for all others who tread that path. So also is the cost of choosing to follow the orders of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to return for the promised reward in the hereafter, when we will be rewarded far more than we imagined. The Messenger sallallahu said to the effect that there will be people who will enter Jannah purely on the basis of their character, their manners and the way they treated others. I remind myself of this because the conditioning in today's environment of measuring everything only by its material worth has undermined all values and reduced us to becoming bean counters who can't see beyond monetary benefit. We have all been impoverished as a result and are suffering collectively from the disease of commercialization, of commercialism, and which demotes us from being citizens to being merely consumers. It is at the altar of this God that we are all sacrificed. We must change this urgently. After we've determined what choices are in our control, it is a good idea also to look at choices that we may not control directly, but we can influence through our network, speech or writing. As you can see, some of the questions you might like to ask is, what can I influence in my favor uh, through others? Whose support do I need? What does that entail? What is beyond my control totally, but what can I do to prepare to face it if it happens? As you can see from these questions, we can influence choices that are made and that have the potential to affect us both through our network as well as through the network of those we know. Choices can also be influenced in the, in the public space through writing, activism, public speaking and various other means all dependent on the degree to which we are creative in using all the elements at our disposal. In his book Invictus, John Carlin documents the many choices that Mr. Mandela influenced to win over a hostile population to his policy of reconciliation, a feat that is unmatched in modern political history. Finally, there will be situations that are likely to be totally out of our control, like the current economic slump that we are going through globally, which we as individuals couldn't have influenced. But even in this case, it is possible to prepare for it so that its effects can be controlled and ameliorated in our own lives. While this may do nothing to reverse the negative change, it can at least cushion us from the worst of the impact. I call this whole approach choosing to be a master and not a victim. I believe that this is a choice that is ours to make. Circumstances will not change as a result, but their effect on us will change. So, master or victim? In the life of every man and woman comes a time and a window opens when they have a unique opportunity to make an impact and influence others. To succeed, we need to anticipate, prepare and act with courage when the window opens. Living life is about making choices. The choice to be a victim of circumstances or the choice to do something about circumstances and become their master. We are free to make this choice, to be a victim or to be a master. But the choices each has a different payoff in terms of its consequences. Both, sta both stances are subject to the same givens of society, environment or organization, but have very different implications in terms of your development and happiness. It's one of the fallacies that people assume that when we say we have freedom of choice, that the choice is free of consequences. 
This is a myth and like all myths, it is a fantasy and a lie. We have freedom to choose but every choice has a price tag. Every choice that we make is the same in this context. Each has a price tag. Foolish people make choices without first ascertaining the price tag and, and are then surprised and shocked and disappointed and so on when the time comes to pay for the choice. Then they blame others for the result which they could have avoided. To, to return to our discussion, victims are people who complain about adversity, they think of excuses, they blame others, they lose hope and they perish. Victims can be individuals, groups, communities or even nations. The victim's stance is the same, complain and blame. Masters, on the other hand, are people who, when faced with difficulty and adversity, first look at themselves to see how and why they came to be in that situation. They own their responsibility and then they look for solutions to resolve that situation. They have the courage to try new ways and win, even if they fail. Masters recognize that whatever happens to us is at least in part, if not wholly, a result of the choices that we made, consciously or unconsciously. The result of what we choose to do or choose not to do. Consequently, if we recognize that we created the situation, then it follows logically that we can also create its solution. The characteristics of masters is that even when they may temporarily be victims in a situation, they quickly ask themselves the key question. Okay, so what can I do about this situation? This question is the key to taking a masterful stance. This is in itself a tremendously empowering mindset which frees a person from the shackles of self-limiting barriers to his or her own development. Master never says, I can't. She or he says, I don't know if I can. And in that is a world of difference. The key question to ask therefore is, in terms of the challenges that I face today, what do I need to do if I want to be a master and not a victim? What is the investment that I need to make in order to succeed? This investment may be in terms of changing our attitudes, beliefs, behavior or lifestyle. It's often difficult to do and even more to sustain, but it's tremendously, tremendously beneficial in all ways. Number five is risk. Once we have identified our choices and decided on a course of action, the next step is to assess the risk involved. These risks can be of two kinds, immediate and long term. So what is the nature of the risk? What is the worst case scenario? And what contingency plans must be made to mitigate the risk? In my view, the most important thing in risk assessment is to insist on real data about the projected risks. Without that, we may be running away from ghosts and fearing things that don't exist. This kind of fear is debilitating and worthless. For example, one of the reasons many people don't take the step to become independent entrepreneurs is because of their risk perception. Asking questions to get some real hard data about the factors involved helps them to realize the true magnitude of the risk and many then take the plunge because they feel capable of handling the risk. Risk may be of different kinds depending on the decisions that you are planning to take. Financial risks uh, to do with, uh, with personal relationships or PR, or safety, potential lost opportunity, uh, lost opportunity cost. Uh, political risks and so on. Each must be analyzed and assessed in terms of its projected impact. The next thing to do is to assess the cost of doing nothing. That is the cost of living in the present state. 
This is often a very critical question because it has the potential to motivate people to take the big steps that they really need to take to change their destiny. The fact is that they will not take them unless they see the need clearly. Burning the boats figuratively is a powerful motivator because it introduces desperation into the equation. Desperation overcomes all sorts of reluctance. Once there is complete agreement on the need for change, we look at risk itself by doing what is called a worst case analysis. We ask, what is the worst that can happen if all systems fail? This is a reality check exercise, which is also a big motivator. Once you have been through the barrier of fear and realize that the so-called worst is not so bad after all and that you have contingency plans and there and that there is much that you can do, firstly to ensure that the worst does not happen at all and secondly to mitigate its effects, if it does happen, it energizes you to take the plunge. In terms of uh, long-term and short-term risk, the difference is that sometimes we tend to put long-term risks on the back burner for too long and are suddenly surprised when they come true. Another common fault is that we don't think about the long-term risk in the excitement of getting started and take short-term risks that impact the long-term. However, since the effect is not immediately visible, we imagine it isn't there. But sometime later, the chickens come home to roost, to our own embarrassment or cost. Analyzing long-term risks is therefore equally important. We follow the same process as I mentioned earlier. We analyze the different kinds of risks involved and cost them and work out the worst-case scenario and make contingency plans. In the case of long-term risk, there may well be things that you can do today which will help to either reduce or completely eliminate the risks. These are well worth considering and spending the time and resources to initiate and they can save a lot of time and tears later. Cost of finance is a typical case in point where the nature of your sourcing can decide success or failure in the long term. Another is the commitment to quality where insisting on excellence in everything right from the first day may seem to be tedious but in the long run it is usually the linchpin factor that attracts the best talent you need to succeed. Short-term gains are important and we must try to get as many as we can, but never at the cost of the long term. It can spell disaster. Sixth and last one is the issue of legacy. In the end, the worth of a life is measured by its contribution. We are remembered not by we are remembered by what we contributed, not by what we consumed. Contribution is measured by the difference we made to other people's lives. Was that positive? then we will be remembered with honor. If not, our passing will be an occasion of breathing a sigh of relief at being rid of a nuisance. It is our choice which of these we want our legacy to be and that's why we must live thoughtfully. Because our life is worthy of that attention. Do you agree? Time is a resource that is not renewable. That is why it's essential to learn to leverage it to get maximum benefit. So so look for yourself and say, My contribution, what was it? Who did it help? What difference did it make? In a world that is obsessively focused on consumption, it is difficult to define yourself in terms of contribution, but I believe most passionately that in the end it's contribution and contribution alone that matters. What difference did it make to the world and those who live in it that I was among them? What would have been lost if I had never been born? And that is a question that must be answered not by me, but by those whose lives I touched. Was that touch something they were happy and satisfied about or is it something that they would rather forget? 
I remember something that one of my mentors told me several decades ago, but which remained with me and on which I have tried to model my life. He once asked me, what do you need to do if you want a plant to grow well? I replied, we need to manure it. He said that means that even manure has a positive effect. So what do you say about the person who lives and dies and there's no effect? And that's what I asked myself, what difference did I make? To this thought, I try to hold myself accountable and for this I would like to be remembered. Over the decades of my life, this has proved its value when someone calls me or meets me and tells me how something that I did or said many years ago helped them. There's nothing more satisfying in life than this. Finally, something on the attitudes that I believe are necessary if one is to live thoughtfully and leave a legacy of honor. There are five which are essential. Number one is seeking accountability. Notice that I'm using the word seeking and not merely accepting. To seek accountability is a critical leadership skill that is visible in those who want to leave a mark of their passing. It is only when we seek accountability that we indicate that we are willing to take responsibility not only for our own work but for, but for its effect on others. To seek accountability is to stand up and say, I did it and I am responsible for the good and the bad of it. To seek accountability is not to export blame, not to find fault, not to make excuses and not to run away from the consequences. People who hide from accountability are clearly stating that they are not ready to lead. And that is why in the end, it is only those who seek accountability that count. Living thoughtfully is to live a life that counts. Number two is discipline. All systems are only as good as their implementation. The best ideas in the world have no effect as long as they remain in the realm of ideas. It is only when they emerge into the world of action that the glory of thought manifests, its, manifests itself and becomes visible in concrete results. The secret behind this is discipline, the ability to make a plan and stick to it. Discipline also has to do with two other things, structuring time and the ability to say no. We all have the same amount of time, but the better we can schedule it, the more productive we become. Scheduling has to do with prioritizing. I have written a note on my tools for managing time in the appendix and so will not go into the details here but will suffice to say that the more efficiently we can prioritize our activities, the more productive will our day be. Saying no is a matter of developing assertiveness. Assertiveness is the ability to stand up for your rights without violating the rights of others. Without assertiveness, you become the proverbial doormat and your life becomes the property of others to dispose of as they please. We often labor under mistaken ideas about hurting others, believing that it is necessary to succumb to every demand because we should not hurt others. Becoming assertive is to accept that you are entitled to your own time and to making the best use of it as you think fit. That you tell someone that they have to wait to see you or talk to you because you are engaged in something that is important to you personally is not a sign of selfishness but of self-respect. To demand that people be punctual is a sign that you respect the other person by being there on time. To expect that the other person reciprocates by being on time himself is your right. There is nothing for them to be hurt by this and if they are hurt that is not your problem or responsibility. It's a development area for them. Number three is seeking feedback. There is only one way to improve and that is to know the effect of our current behavior. And there is only one way to know the effect of our behavior and that is to seek feedback. For feedback to be useful, it must be database. It must tell you specifically what you did well or what you did badly. 
If feedback is merely opinion in another form, be it positive or negative, it is of no use. For example, if you just made a speech and someone came up to you and said, that is the best speech I've ever heard in my life. That statement is as useless as if someone comes and says, excuse me, I am sorry to say that's the worst speech I ever heard. It is true that the first statement will make you happy and you will walk around in a warm golden glow for a couple of hours afterwards. And the second statement will make you either sad or mad. <clears throat> but for the purpose of learning, both are equally useless because they don't give any data. They are merely subjective opinions which leave you equally clueless about the reasons why you were appreciated or deprecated. So you must always ask for the reasons. Thank you very much for saying that. Would you please tell me what exactly you like to dislike? Then make notes. Thank the person once again for taking the trouble to talk to you. And then later, consider the data that you have. It is not necessary to always accept anything that comes your way. But it is always necessary to consider it. Then accept what you believe is valuable. Remembering, of course, that not all that is valuable is always pleasant to taste. Number four is the willingness to change. If we are serious about our development, which is the purpose of living thoughtfully, we need to be willing to change when there is a need to do so. Without this openness, change will not occur even though we may have all the information needed to change. Willingness to change, in my view, indicates two critical attitudes of the winner, which underlie it, and that is humility and the pursuit of excellence. It is only when someone is confident but realizes that there is always room for improvement that he or she is willing to change. Without that humility, feedback falls on deaf ears or worse, causes offense. As for the pursuit of excellence, only when someone wants to constantly improve that he or she will be willing to change and will not become rigid in their ways. A person will seek, feed, will seek feedback not merely as a formality, but with the active intention of using it constructively. They will monitor their effectiveness and measure it against high standards and seek to excel. This is not a one-time or one-stage-of-life activity, but something that the person who is focused on excellence does constantly all through their life, to the, very, to the very end. And that is what distinguishes them and makes them stand out and differentiate from the rest. I have had the good fortune to know some people who, even in their later years, would learn from their juniors with such childlike enthusiasm that it made me wonder at, at what a wonderful work environment they must have created around them all their lives. This shows a genuine commitment to self-improvement that supersedes all. And number five, perhaps the most important, is unflinching honesty with yourself. I left it to the last because it is, in a manner of speaking, the platform on which everything else runs. Without honesty, none of the other attitudes will function. I use the term unflinching because sometimes honest self-assessment is painful. But unless we can look at ourselves squarely in the eye, own up to our actions and then say, okay, so what do I need to do now going forward? Without flinching, we will not be able to improve. Running away from facts never helped anyone and won't help us either. Facts must be faced and dealt with as they exist. Facts can be changed, but they can't be wished away. So being absolutely honest with yourself is the foundation of all attitudes of success. And that is why I mention it here at the end. In conclusion, I would like to say that living thoughtfully is all about leaving behind a legacy of honor. You may well ask, why should I necessarily leave a legacy? I ask, why not indeed? We live, we only live once. Why not live so that we leave behind something worthwhile? 